The Old Testament reading this morning is from Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of your brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall be a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue uh, through our series on the life of Joseph. Before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. 
We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you for the truth that it teaches us. We thank you, Father, for the gospel that it proclaims. I do pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this text, Lord, and that you would apply them, these wonderful truths, to our heads, to our hands, and to our hearts. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the power and the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in today's passage, we we come to a a very important moment in Joseph's life, uh, in the Joseph narrative, and, and, and in Jacob's life, his father as well. We come to Jacob's act of of blessing the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And this is important because this is the one act of Jacob that's mentioned in Hebrews 11. As as the author of Hebrews tells about these great acts of faith performed by the saints in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11.21 tells us, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship, over the head of his staff. And as we'll see as we go along, more than anything else, this act of blessing is a great act of hope in the ways and the works of God. And so towards that end, let's let's look at today's passage under three headings. Let's look at the hope we should trust, the hope we should want, and the hope that we should receive. Let's look at each of those in turn, starting with the hope that we should trust. The beginning of Hebrews 11, uh, the the chapter we mentioned before that draws special attention to to Jacob's blessing of Joseph's sons, the beginning of this chapter goes like this. We read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. What we find here is that faith and hope are deeply connected. We're told that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We're told that faith makes hope something we are confident in. Faith is our trust, our trust that our hope will happen. And so think about it like this. If we make a promise, we're doing more than than simply saying words. If we're going to make a promise, we have to have both the intention and the ability to make good on our promise. For instance, if if I tell you that I'm going to visit you next week, if I promise you, I say, I'm going to visit you next week, but I actually have no intentions to come to visit you, I haven't made a promise. What I've done is lied. We must intend to make good on our promise. But we also have to have the ability to make good on our promise. For instance, if I promise you, even if I promise you with complete and utter sincerity that exactly two years from now it will be 75 degrees and sunny in Iowa City, as much as I might hope that, that's not a promise. I cannot control the weather in that way. I don't have that ability. And this same dynamic is true for the promises of God. If God is going to make a promise, he must have both the intention and the ability to make good on his word. God must be good. 
God must be a God who carries out what he says he will do. And God must be powerful. He must have the ability to actually do what he says. Again, as the author of Hebrews tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And why can we have assurances in the promises of God? Because it is the good and the powerful God who promises. When God makes a promise, again, he has both the intention and the ability to make good on his word. And so we should not be surprised here that the author of Hebrews directs us to the powerful acts of God in the past to give us hope and trust in the acts of God in the future. Again, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. God created the whole universe and everything in it. God also upholds all things. Even the devil exists only because God sustains him. If God were to remove his hand, even the devil himself would go back to nothing. This is the great creator God who promises All that happens, God has ordained, and so what he promises will most certainly come to pass. And so if we find ourselves doubting the promises of God, we are either doubting his goodness, his intention to carry out his word, or his power, his ability to carry out his word. And so I encourage you, everyone, encourage, sorry, meditate, meditate on these attributes, on the goodness and the power of God. One exercise is to regularly read and pray the Psalms. These prayers of the Bible, they constantly voice the goodness and the power of God. And of course, we also have to think about the way we speak about God because what we say helps determine what it is that we believe. And so we must continually speak of God as both good and powerful. We know this. Our our, our hearts often follow our words. And this is precisely what Jacob does in today's passage. When he first speaks to Joseph about the Lord, he calls him God Almighty. He speaks of God as all-powerful. And so God, the God, is well able to do all that he wills. But there's more. The Almighty God is also the good God. Listen to how Jacob begins his blessing. He says this, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. God uses his great power to enter into fellowship with Abraham and Isaac, like parents who who gently stoop down to embrace their child. God gently stoops down to be with his people. And God, in his power, comes alongside Jacob as his good shepherd all the days of his life. In all things, the Lord, in his power and in his goodness, has orchestrated Jacob's life with the care and the love of a shepherd. This is the beauty of the Christian God the almighty God who walks with us and leads us as a shepherd. He is the powerful God who is good and the good God who is powerful. And we talked about this last week, but but Jacob's life has been a hard life. But through it all, Jacob has no doubt 
that the Lord has been both God Almighty and his good shepherd. And this truth helps us understand why Hebrews put so much emphasis on this act of blessing that Jacob here does. Think about it. Jacob's household has just moved to Egypt. And and yes, right now, they're enjoying the favor of the Egyptians. But this is going to change very soon. The people of God are about to enter into 400 years of harsh Egyptian slavery. And eventually, a pharaoh will come along who will decree that all of the male Israelite babies must be killed. This is what awaits the people of God. They are about to go through a harrowing trial that will last four centuries. Think about that. 400 years is a very long time. Think about how long ago the year 1623 was from now. That's a long time. And we, we're so often quick to lose faith in a short time, but imagine a trial that tests your faith, your hope for 400 years. And here's the thing. While Jacob likely doesn't know all the specifics here, he does know that 400 years of hardship is coming. He knows this as he says this blessing. God told his grandfather Abraham many years ago, all the way back in Genesis 15, God told him this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. However, through it all, Ephraim and Manasseh and all of their descendants, they are to know that God is their good and mighty shepherd. And this is true even when it looks like God is leading them into a den of wolves. And here's the surprising thing. It's actually in these harsh conditions that we see the beginning of this blessing come about. Jacob says over his grandchildren, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And to our surprise, we we, we actually see the beginning of this fulfillment in Exodus 1. We read, the Egyptians set taskmasters, sorry, set taskmasters over the people of Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The powerful and good shepherd, he actually works to fulfill this promise in the very conditions that seem wholly opposed to it. Even in this terrible hardship, God is making good on his word. God can be trusted. Remember those key words from Joseph at the end of his life. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's exactly the paradigm that we see here. God is making his sheep flourish amidst wolves. So much so that the wolves are in dread of the sheep. And we always need to remember this. In the modern moment, as much as any moment, we all know that the last few years have been very difficult years. The pandemic, social and political tensions, the the American church has been racked with scandals. The international stage has has witnessed the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, We see the the recent war between Israel and Hamas. There's there's a fear that that AI might replace so many jobs and careers that, that once seemed so secure. We're not sure what's going to happen, and of course, no one knows what the future of the church will be. It's, it's reception in, in the culture in the years to come. Maybe persecution will increase. Maybe it will not. 
And that's the thing. The world we are entering, it may be a very different world, or it may not. We may be experiencing a great shift, or we may not. We don't know. But either way, what we do know is that God is our good and mighty shepherd. And friends, if he can work his promises through 400 years of Egyptian slavery, then he can absolutely absolutely work his promises in whatever, whatever the future has for us. Again, God often grows his flock amidst the wolves, so much so that the wolves are afraid of the sheep. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob knows that God is good and powerful, and so he worships the Lord and he blesses the boys on the brink of a much greater trial than any of us will likely face in the years to come. And this is a great act of faith and hope. Whatever tomorrow brings, God has ordained it and God will shepherd us through it. God's hope is a hope we should trust. God is good. God has every intention to make good on his word. God is powerful. God has every ability to make good on his word. And that brings us to our second point, the hope we should want. There's more to hope than just trust. To hope for something, we actually need to want that thing to happen. And that means that we must learn to want. We have to learn to want what it is that God has promised. If we don't want something, we won't hope for it. We may dread it, we may fear it, we may be wholly apathetic about it, but we will not hope for it. To hope for something, we need to want it. But the hope that God promises is not always easy to want. Consider the boys, these two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob blesses them in a way that that, that perhaps surprises Joseph. Jacob tells Joseph, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Because of the situation that the boys were born into, there there may have actually been some uncertainty whether they would be considered part of the household of of Jacob or or part of the household of Egypt. Their mother was an Egyptian, and and Joseph himself has risen to be the the second-in-command in all of Egypt. And so maybe there's a bit of a question. Would would, would they be raised in the household of God or, or would they be raised as Egyptian princes? But Jacob here is clear. Just as much as Reuben and Simeon, the boys will be of the house of Israel. They will not identify themselves as Egyptians. They will identify themselves as part of the sojourning people that will soon be oppressed. And this is not going to make life easier for these boys and their descendants, but this does not make it mean it will make it worse. Far from it. The author of Hebrews, he writes this about Moses in chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And here, by this blessing, Jacob has made this very same choice for Ephraim and Manasseh. And it is for their good. 
They and their descendants will become a people that enjoy God and not the fleeting pleasures of sin. But does this mean that the boys will have nothing to do with Egypt? No, no. Very likely, given their father Joseph's role in the Egyptian government, these two boys will also likely function in a kind of official capacity. They, like their father, will work for the good of Egyptian society, and that's a good thing. We, too, are called to work for the good of the society in which God has placed us. But the boys, they're to find their fundamental identity not in the household of Egypt, but in the household of God's people. That is their most basic citizenship. That is primarily who they are. And so when, when, when Egypt turns against the people of God, the boys and their descendants, like Moses after them, they will identify with the people and as the people of God. So how and why would they do this? Because they want God's promises. They most want what God alone can give and not what Egypt can give. If the boys identified with the people of Egypt and not the people of God, they would be wanting most, wanting most the wrong things. They would be seeking above all else status and wealth and luxury and prestige, physical pleasure. And think about it, as sons of the second highest official in Egypt, I'm sure they could have had as much of any of these things as they wanted to. But they would be seeking their ultimate hope only in the good things of creation. And the problem is not desiring the good things of creation. These are good things, but desiring them more than God himself. And if any of these things could have satisfied the deepest desires of their heart, then Jacob here has just done a terrible thing. However, if what God promises is what they most need, then Jacob has saved the very lives of these boys by placing them fundamentally in the household of God. Yes, they will still work and and work diligently for the good of Egyptian society, but their true citizenship is with the people of God. And so, what is it that God promises? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that God promises us himself. He promises us that we may fellowship and commune with God fully one day in the heavenly Jerusalem, the restored creation, along with all of those all of those who share this hope with us. And so God ultimately promises us himself. But does this move our hearts? Do we actually desire God? Here's the scary thing. Being high up in Egyptian society and most wanting what Egyptian society can give This is the most dangerous or would be the most dangerous and treacherous place for the boys. If the boys do not desire God as the people of God, they are set up for the greatest unhappiness, tragedy, and judgment. Augustine. Augustine is helpful here. Augustine actually, he lays out a fourfold spectrum from the the highest happiness to the lowest unhappiness. He tells us that the highest joy, that's for those who want rightly and fully receive what it is that they rightly want. And this, of course, is the realized promise of the heavenly Jerusalem, worshiping, loving God in full, loving our neighbor with God. 
The lower level of happiness, it's interesting. Those are for those who want rightly, but only partly, only partially have received what they fully, sorry, what they rightly want. And and that would be the Christian in, in this age. We have God in part, but we await that full communion with the Lord. Again, this, this is our great hope. From there, Augustine moves to two levels of unhappiness, and you, you might be able to guess what he does. The first level of unhappiness, that's for those who desire wrongly, and they don't get what they wrongly desire. Perhaps they desire most of all wealth or luxury or pleasure or status or romance or prestige. It's impossible for them to be happy because they don't desire rightly. They don't desire most God himself. But ironically, they are actually less unhappy because they have not received what they wrongly desire. They're like people who are are thirsty, so thirsty, and they see salt water, but they're just not able to get to it. And of course, salt water will only make us thirstier. But they think that water will quench my thirst. And so, ironically, it's actually better for them that they can't and they don't drink it. Because Augustine tells us the most unhappy of all are those who desire wrongly and have what they wrongly desire. These are the people who more than anything else, they want wealth or luxury, pleasure, romance, prestige. And they actually end up getting these things. They're like people who see the salt water and who can actually drink the salt water. And so they are the least joyful and the most unhappy of all. And this is actually a biblical position. We should expect that from Augustine. In Romans 1, Paul says that a key paradigm of God's judgment is actually handing us over, giving us over to our disordered desires. The more that we are given over, the more that we are actually able to fulfill these desires, the more miserable we become. And it is this most unhappy of all situations that Jacob has saved Ephraim and Manasseh from. With their position, they literally could have had anything that their hearts desired. The problem is that their hearts, if they were not of the people of God would have desired most the wrong things. In several of his sermons, Tim Keller, he he shares this quote from a New York publication. And the writer, uh, she's reflecting on her relationship with with celebrities that she has known. And it's it's, it's a bit of a harsh quote, but, but as Keller points out, it actually gets to the heart of a terrifying dynamic that we need to be aware of. The author writes this, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness... It had happened, and nothing changed. They were still them, and the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. 
And what is being traced out here is the very dynamic that Augustine points to. And please hear me, of course, this does not describe every celebrity. What's happening here is when we give up everything to become famous in this case, and we actually get it, that thing that we desired above all else. And please hear me, as Keller points out, God does not play cruel tricks on people. But, as Romans 1 tells us, this is a key paradigm for judgment. We are given over to those desires that seek the things of creation more than God. I mean, think about it. Imagine having all of the money you could want, or all of the comfort, or acclaim, or wealth, or romance, or physical pleasure you could ever want, and then finding out that this deep longing in your heart is still unfulfilled. Or think about it like this. Imagine the unhappiness laid out by Augustine is, is a kind of restaurant. And, and this restaurant, this restaurant is, is for those who think that the things of this world, the things of this world will satisfy the deep longings of our soul. Some have ordered their meals and, and they've already received what they wanted. They're starving. They, they, they excitedly receive their plate. But when they try to eat, they realize that the food is wax. Others have ordered, and and, and they're still waiting for their meals. They don't know yet that they're ordering wax, and, and, and so they excitedly wait for that false hope of food. And so all of us need to constantly ask ourselves, are we in this restaurant? Are we clinging to a naivete of a false hope, thinking that this will fill me up? Or are we suffering cynicism of a false hope tasted and revealed? I've tasted it, it's wax, and so I'm left to starve in a world without any real food. And there's only one proper response here. It's, it's turning to God. We, we have to see this sadness as a kind of divine mercy meant to push us back, to direct us to the Lord. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. God gives what he has, not what he has not. He gives the happiness that there is not the happiness that is not. If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe ever can grow, then we must starve eternally. And so let us take these truths to heart. Because very likely, none of us have achieved all that we've ever wanted. You probably haven't achieved everything you've wanted in your career or finances or relationships. And perhaps even when you think about your life, things have not turned out like you had hoped, like you initially planned. Well, these truths tell us that that perhaps, perhaps, God is protecting you from your disordered desires. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, lead us not into temptation, but do we actually mean it? There's a scene in the movie A Man for All Seasons where where the main character, Sir Thomas More, He's asked by his young friend Richard for a a position uh, as a court official in the English Parliament. And this is during the reign of of King Henry VIII. But Moore realizes that Richard, he's, he's given to temptation and that a job like this would be the very worst thing for him. A job like this would destroy Richard's soul. And so more, he, he actually offers Richard a very generous teaching post with, with a salary and a house and a servant. But Richard rejects this offer. Moore asks, why not be a teacher? 
You'd be a fine teacher, perhaps a great one. Richard answers, if I was, who would know it? Moore responds, you, your pupils, your friends, God. Not a bad public, that. Moore offers this job because he sees that bribes and temptations and prestige, the temptations of those things in the English court, they would destroy Richard. And this is exactly what happens. In the film, Richard goes on to lie about Moore under oath, and it's a lie that leads to Moore's execution. Richard lies in order to get a high-ranking position in Wales, and he's given this post by Moore's political enemies. Richard has got exactly what he wanted, a high official position that everyone can see, but it has ruined him. He's become a liar, and in effect, he's become a murderer. He got what he wanted, and he destroyed himself in the process. And as Richard leaves the court, Moore looks to him and he says, Why, Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the world. But for whales? It's a great line. And I don't mean to poke fun at at, at whales. The point is that even if we gain the whole world, it's not worth losing our soul. It's also the case that we never even gain the world. We never even gain whales. We gain a few extra dollars, a few claps of applause, a few likes on social media, a few nods of approval, a few fleeting passions fulfilled, a few people telling us that we're important, a few sighs of relief that, okay, you're not that kind of Christian, a few things that will amount to nothing. Friends, the Lord knows our frames. When we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, the Lord means for us to mean it. And perhaps our lives have not looked like we planned because, like Richard, that kind of success, whatever it is, would destroy us. Perhaps God has protected us from a position that would allow us to make good on our very worst and most dangerous desires. If you are in a place of influence and position, this is a great gift, but it's also a great responsibility. And the higher your office, the higher, the greater your temptation. For instance, if you're a professor, you must fight against academic arrogance. You must not forget your responsibilities to your students. You must learn to rejoice in the accomplishments of your colleagues, not seeing them as competitors. And friends, if you ever find yourself thinking, well, I can't say that, at least not until I'm tenured, then perhaps you won't believe that anymore once you are tenured. If you're a doctor, you must not forget your responsibility to the health and the well-being of your patients. You must not let professional temptations pull you away from this and overtake your soul. Whatever your professions, be aware, be vigilant about the temptations of that profession. And never stop asking yourself, am I giving up my soul for this? As for the boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, they will likely face temptations that the rest of the household of Jacob will not face. They are part of the people of God, but in doing their good work in Egyptian society as high officials, they will face face special temptations. 
However, at the same time, they will also be able to work for the good of Egyptian society in unique and important ways. And through it all, God alone is their great hope. No matter what happens in this short life, they know that it is the good and the powerful God that they are trusting and seeking and wanting. And so they are willing to suffer the scorn of Egyptian society as the people of God. And we have to keep asking ourselves, are we willing to do that? And that brings us to our third and final point, the hope we should receive. In saying that certain positions come along with certain temptations, please hear me. I'm not saying that certain jobs are higher or better in the kingdom of heaven. All good work is full of dignity. The humblest shepherd in the house of Jacob holds just as much worth in his work as does the high official Joseph. And this too cuts against Egyptian society. And this truth helps us understand another key part of the passage. Why does Jacob bless the younger over the older? Both receive the same words of blessing, but Ephraim the younger is blessed by Jacob's right hand. And and, and this displeases Joseph. Joseph actually tries to switch his father's hands But among other things, this is a lesson for Joseph. If anyone in the household of God would be tempted to forget that this life is a sojourn and that evil days are ahead in Egypt, it would be Joseph. Again, Joseph has risen to great prominence in Egypt, but he has to remember that his true home, his true city, is the heavenly Jerusalem. He must remember that the ways and the works of God are not the ways of the kingdoms of this world, and so... God, through Jacob, blesses, gives the greater blessing to the unexpected one. To give a greater blessing to the older, that would be the convention of the surrounding culture. But God works in ways that we don't expect. The conventions of Egypt are not the conventions of the heavenly Jerusalem. And we see this, too, in the words of blessing. Jacob says, The angel who redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, But what does Jacob mean here by redeemed? Well, the Hebrew word here, goel, it can be translated as either redeem or rescue. And this Old Testament action, this Old Testament practice, it actually refers to a special and specific role. Old Testament scholar Gordon Winham, he writes, The rescuer was usually the nearest male relative whose responsibility was to bail someone out if he fell into debt or slavery. Okay? Fair enough, but, but, but who is this angel? What is he talking about here? Winham also explains that when the Old Testament speaks of the angel, it speaks of the one who is the appearance of God in human form. What then does Jacob mean here? Is Jacob speaking about his closest male relative, or is he speaking about the appearance of God in human form? Well, both. These words are the promise, the promise of Christ, the promise of God the Son become human to rescue and redeem his people, all of those who share, who share Jacob's great faith, Jacob's great hope throughout all of history. This rescuer, this redeemer is why these children can be blessed and why they can rest their hope in God. 
Strictly speaking, we all have rejected the ways of God for the ways of Egypt. All of us are in debt to God and in slavery to sin. But this Redeemer, Christ, God in human form, in the form of our closest male relative, in the form of our very brother, this one has lived the perfect life of faithfulness and love before God and neighbor. And so, strictly speaking, he alone deserves this blessing and this promise that the two boys are receiving. However, Christ has given this blessing to us. And even more, he has taken the debt of sin upon his own shoulders, our debt of sin. On the cross, Christ takes the curse that we deserve. Christ, who is both God and our truest brother, he takes upon himself the curse of sin so that we, like these boys, might receive the blessing and the promise of God. These are not the cultural conventions of Egypt. And Christ, the great and good God himself, comes down and takes our curse so that he might give us his blessing. And friends, no matter what wrongs you have done, if you place your faith in Christ... We find that he has borne the curse and the punishment for each and every sin upon the cross. And he freely offers us this blessing and this promise. And so what is the hope that we should trust, that we should want, that we should receive because of the work of Jesus Christ? It is this, as the last book of the Bible tells us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, he said, behold, I am making all things new. This and this alone is our great hope. Trust it, want it, receive it. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the hope that you've given to us in Christ Jesus that we can trust, that we should want, that we can receive freely. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.